0: If you have a Bible, why don't you open it with me to James chapter 5. We had a reading from Isaiah 40. We're going to be getting there toward the end of our sermon this morning, but we're going to be uh, beginning in James chapter 5, James 5, and let's, let's pray together. God, we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you'd open up our hearts and our minds that you would speak. That you would use this time and this space to reinvigorate our hope, to cultivate in us the virtue of patience, to enable us to see what it means to be a people who wait. And we ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So, this morning, as has already been mentioned, is the first Sunday of Advent. Now, Advent is that season on the church calendar that is marked out as a time of waiting. In fact, the word Advent actually means arrival or coming. And during Advent, we remember Israel in her long night of exile, waiting and longing for the coming of the Messiah, for the coming of God's kingdom. And during Advent, we not only remember Israel in her long night of exile, in her season of waiting we're also reminded that that is our identity as God's people as well. We too are marked out as a people who are waiting for the arrival, for the coming of God. We wait for the full and the final establishment of God's kingdom on earth. And so during this season of Advent, we are reminded that we are a waiting people who are called to that great virtue of patience. And so during this season, we're going to be launching a series entitled How Long, O Lord? And we're going to be exploring together over the next few weeks the theme of waiting. Now, let me just ask you, how do you feel about waiting? Anybody in the room like a real nice long wait? I'm impatient by nature. I'm a Swanson, and all of the Swansons, if you get to know us, you'll know that we are impatient by nature. I hate waiting in lines at Trader Joe's or Costco. I hate being put on hold. I hate, hate, hate traffic. I hate to wait. On the cruise a couple weeks ago, it struck me just how impatient I really am. Uh, I needed to check my wife's visa, and so we paid $30 for for 24 hours of internet access, Now, I'm here on a luxurious floating hotel. I have nowhere to go. I have nothing to do, nothing to do actually. People come in and clean my room three times a day. They prepare every meal, they clean up after me. My only responsibility on the cruise is to eat. And so I'm there, I have nothing to do. And so I log on and I go online and here I am on this luxurious hotel floating in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and I have at my fingertips global knowledge. And I am utterly irate inside because it's taking 120 seconds for the page to load. And I'm like, when is this thing going to load? And I'm like, come on, buddy, relax. I'm impatient. But I realize I'm not alone. One day I was on the cruise and uh, I was over getting uh, uh, an an ice cream cone because you usually have two or three lunches and in between each one of the lunches you have two or three ice cream cones. And so I'm over there in line for an ice cream cone and the guy, this young Indonesian man who's been scooping ice cream for 10 hours a day, seven days a week, he runs out of bowls. And so there's this, I know, you, there was an audible gasp in the audience. That's how the lady felt next to me who was standing there. And, um, and, 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 and he says, I'm out of bowls. I got to go find one. And he leaves. And he has gone for probably three minutes. And she looks over at me and she is just utterly starting to come unglued. You know, because she's, she's only had two ice creams today, and it's almost 11 a.m. in the morning. And, and, and she's like, you told me this, a ship this size, and they can't find one bowl? And I just looked over at her, and I said, Lady, you need to interpret this as the gift of God. You've had way too much ice cream. I can... <laughs> I didn't say that, but I did think that. This is just an aside, but you know, I used to think when I would interact, I'd never been on a cruise before. I used to think when people went on cruises, they went on cruises to see the Caribbean or Alaska or the Panama Canal. But I now realize that that's, all just, that's all just a stage for the real action. The real action on a cruise is eating. That's all you do. T- you just eat and you eat and it's, it's wonderful. But I'm incredibly impatient. This woman was incredibly impatient. Many of you are incredibly impatient. Anyone here hate to wait? Have you ever stopped to consider how much of our life involves waiting? You know, we wait in airports and in traffic and in lines at Trader Joe's. We wait for an email response or a text or a callback. We wait for internet pages to load. We wait for 16th birthdays for a graduation, for a date, for a wedding, for an elderly parent to finally pass. We wait for a summer vacation, for a graduation, for good health, for Mr. Wright, for a divorce to be finalized, for the sadness to finally end, for the happiness to begin. I read uh, this week on the internet that uh, the average person waits 46 to 62 minutes a day And uh, the same report went on to say that that averages out to about three years of your life is spent waiting. Now, I know what you think. Some of you think, well, that's that's probably, that can't be true. But I read it on the internet, so. (laughs) But what I want to talk to you about today is waiting on God. I want to talk to you today about patience with God. And this is a big theme in Scripture. One of the most frequent commands in the book of Psalms is for us to wait on the Lord. And of course, one of the most frequent refrains in response to that command is, How long, O Lord? Wait, yes, but when, God? When are you going to act? Lewis Smedes once wrote this. He's a theologian, uh, professor at Fuller Seminary. He said this. He said, waiting is our destiny. As creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for. We wait in the darkness for a flame we cannot light. We wait in fear for a happy ending that we cannot write. We wait for a not yet that feels like a not ever. Or is that other great theologian Tom Petty once sang, waiting is the hardest part. Now, there are different senses to this word waiting. Waiting could mean stop. It could mean hold still, as in the ball goes out in the street and my daughter's about to run out and I say, honey, wait, stay there, stay put while I go out and grab the ball. But there's another sense of this word waiting, and it's a, and it's a relational sense. It's, it's, it's when we use the word in the sense of waiting on another person or waiting on God. And so it might be that my wife or, uh, is frustrated because it seems like every time I go to the store and I have a list, I always forget something on the list and we review the list before I go to the store, and we go over it once again, and don't forget this, and I get there, and then I have it in my head, and I'm, I'm looking at the list, I'm looking at the list, and I don't know what happens, but at some moment in the store, the list goes out of my mind, and then I come home, and I inevitably forget something. And my wife is understandably frustrated, and I say, honey, be patient with me. Be patient with me. I'm learning, I'm growing. And what am I saying? I'm I'm, I'm saying, don't give up on me. Bear with me. And this is relational waiting. And this is the waiting we're talking about with God. Now, in some ways, it seems a little bit odd because on one level, it seems as if God is the one who should be patient with us. And certainly, God needs a lot of patience with you, doesn't he? I mean, think about how hard-headed you are sometimes. God needs to be patient with you. But there's another sense in which, in the scriptures, we are invited into patience with God, to bear with God, because we're waiting on him to heal our broken heart, to heal our broken marriage, to bring the prodigal home, and it seems like he is ignoring us. He's inactive, he's uncooperative, he's late, he's always late, and we're wondering, how long, when, oh God? And we are called to become a people of patience who know what it means to wait on God. But how do we develop this virtue of patience? How do we cultivate this attitude of waiting on God? And to explore that question, I want to invite you to consider the teaching of James five verses seven through eleven. in this in this text, James is talking to us about cultivating patience with God. He's talking to us about waiting on God. Now, in context, he's actually writing to a group of farmers who had been taken advantage of. They were oppressed. They were not being paid enough. They were not being paid on time. And they were part of an oppressed minority. Their employers were taking advantage of them. And they were asking, how long, oh Lord, how long will we sit in this space of injustice? And James writes to them about patience. And to invite them and to invite us to cultivate patience, he tells us we need to develop perspective. To have patience, you need perspective. And he invites us in, in to, to look forward, to look back, and to look up in order to develop perspective. And so, I want you to explore with me what it means to look forward and to look back and to look up in an effort to cultivate patience. Notice first, he tells us in our text to look forward. Look at what it says in verse seven. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. And you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the Lord, the judge, is standing at the door. He says in verse 7, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. He directs us to look ahead and to fix our hope on what is ahead. He identifies our future hope, and he says, now focus on it. See the light at the end of the tunnel. The coming of the Lord is at hand. And you know how it is when you are engaged in something that seems like it will never end? You need to see the light at the end of the tunnel. A couple years back, uh, when I was in Albuquerque, I participated uh, with my swim team in something they called the Big M. And it was this swim that went 10,000 meters, which is something of the equivalent of a marathon for swimmers. And I can remember after about the first three or 4,000 meters, you start to hit a wall. And you kind of have to break through that wall. And you feel like giving up. And, and, you know, you get into the middle and, and about three quarters of the way through and you're just dragging and it just feels like, and then all of a sudden you get down to the, like the last 2000 meters and you can see the light at the end of the tunnel and it actually energizes you and you speed up and you can keep going because you see the end. And so too with us, when we oftentimes feel like giving up, we need to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And what is the light at the end of the tunnel? He says here, it is the coming of the Lord. It is the establishment of the healing, the justice bringing, the peaceable kingdom of God, which will flood creation and make everything new and beautiful again. He says, this is where you're headed. Wait, hold on for the coming of God when God will make all things right. Now, if you are suffering and you're in pain, you're experiencing oppression, it can sound a little bit trite to say something like that. I mean, could you imagine my daughters, uh, they come up to me, they want to go, they want us all to go to Magic Mountain. And they love roller coasters, and I want to go with them. They know I love roller coasters, and they've been and I've been, but we've never been together. So they're like, Daddy, Daddy, when? When are we going to go to Magic Mountain? And I say, hold on, honey. We're going to go when Jesus returns. (laughs) I feel like that's not helpful, Dad. (laughs) Doesn't it sound a little bit trite? But think about it. If you're going through deep suffering, you need big hope. Now, if you're just in little suffering, you just need a little bit of hope. You know, if you're on the treadmill and you see the timer going down, and you're like, yes, I'm finally at five minutes left. That's all I got. If you are experiencing little pain, you need little hope. But if you are experiencing big pain, big suffering, what you need is a big an unmovable hope. And this is what we are given in Scripture. You are given an inextinguishable hope of the final, eternal kingdom of God. And this hope is not that one day God is going to explain your pain and he's gonna go back over your life and say, let me show you all of the reasons why you went through this pain and that pain and this suffering because I was just orchestrating it all together. God is not going to explain our pain. God is going to overturn the injustice and the evil and he is going to utterly drive it out and make everything new. In his book about the tragic tsunami in 2004, theologian David Bentley Hart put it like this. The whole book was a a theological reflection on where was God in the midst of this dark sea. And he, he talks about the tears of young women who had lost their moms, and he wrote this. He said, now we are able to rejoice that we are saved not through the imminent mechanisms of history and nature, but by grace, that God will not unite all of history's many strands in one great synthesis, but will judge much of history false and damnable. And that he will not simply reveal the sublime logic of the fallen nature, but will strike off the fetters in which creation languishes. And that rather than showing us how the tears of a small girl suffering in the dark were necessary for the building of the kingdom, he will instead raise her up and wipe away all tears from her eyes And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor any more pain. For the former things will have passed away. And he that sits on the throne will say, behold, I make all things new. So this is not a trite hope. This is an inextinguishable hope. But it is a nuanced hope. Because I want you to see that he actually compares this hope to a farmer who's planting. And it's nuanced in this sense. The coming kingdom of God is both already and not yet. The coming kingdom of God has broken in and yet it is still yet to break in. On one level, in the life and in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus, in the outpouring of the Spirit, in the Spirit-clothed and empowered church who has worked for justice and mercy and who has borne witness to the resurrected Jesus, God's kingdom has broken in. It has already been inaugurated. But we've not yet seen the full culmination of this kingdom when God pulls back the curtain and Jesus is revealed to the world as its true king, the true lover of creation, when he makes all things resurrection new. And we live in the tension between the already and the not yet. And in this tension, we both hope that God will act in the here and now because God is present and he is on the move. God does set people free today. God does bring healing today. God does work justice today through his church. And so we can hope that God will work today. And yet, all that God does in the kingly work right now is just a glimpse it's just a foretaste of ultimately what is to come. You know, you've been to Costco, and you just get a little sample of that lasagna, but it is nothing compared to the 35 pounds that are sitting in the freezer. (laughs) And listen, the glimpse that we get right now of justice and peace and freedom is just a glimpse of ultimately the brilliance of God's kingdom that will one day flood creation. And so we learn to wait. We learn patience as we wait for this kingdom. A Czech theologian in his book Patience with God named Tomas Halik put it like this. He said the difference between faith and atheism is patience. Atheism is best seen, he says, as an incomplete truth. It does name God's silence in the world. His absence without really recognizing those places where God is present, that's why it's incomplete. But they draw from God's silence to hasty a conclusion. Faith is holding on in spite of the current arrangement. The difference between faith and atheism is patience. We learn to wait for God to do what we long for God to do. Or put it like this, I listen to a lot of debates between atheists and Christians. I have this program that I love called Unbelievable. If you've not listened to it, it's a little podcast. You should listen to it. It's great. And of course, the Achilles heel for a Christian is not science in the Bible. It's not, you know, a lot of the things that that people make it is the, the big thing for Christians is the problem of evil. If there is a God who is all-powerful and if there is a God who is all-loving, then why pain? All that love, all that power, and yet still I suffer. The Christian answer to that problem is not that God actually has lots of plans and mechanisms for suffering. He's up there just kind of moving the pieces on the chessboard and kind of creating suffering here and there. And, but he's got a plan for it. And so we're trying to convince atheists of the logic of evil in the world. That's false. God is against the evil and injustice of this world. And one day he will eradicate it. He will excise it. He will finally and completely drive it out and make everything new and good and will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And so we wait, and we long for that day, and we wait patiently for it. But it is not a passive. It's not an indifferent patience. It's an active patience. Look at how he puts it in the text. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth? How does the farmer wait? The farmer doesn't wait passively. He doesn't just sit back and say, well, let's just let God do it. You know, the farmer plows the field and he plants the seed and he waters it and he cares for it. and He nurtures it and, and he, he, he gets rid of the bugs and the pests and he's wise about how he organizes the crops. And yet at the end of the day, the final harvest is not in his hands. And this is our waiting. We are active as God's people in this world. People that sit back and say, I'm just going to wait for God to do it. You know, just sit back, you know, you're passive, you're not doing anything, and we have a theological name for that. It's called stupidity. <laughs> Martin Luther King Jr., in his letter to, uh, from a Birmingham prison, he responded to a group of white ministers who were complaining that he, he, he wasn't patient enough. And in this letter, he gets in their face and he says, look, patience for King did look like waiting ultimately for justice to roll down like a mighty fountain and mighty rivers, And he looked forward to a day he knew himself he would not get to the promised land. He was invigorated by a hope beyond the present arrangement of things. But it was not a passive hope. It was not an indifferent hope. It was active and it moved him to work in the here and now for that which ultimately would flood all of creation. And that should inspire and invigorate us as well. And so he says, look forward and be patient, but let it be an active patience as you labor in the now for ultimately the harvest that is to come. But he doesn't just say look forward. He also tells us in our text to look back. Look what he says in verse 10 through 11. He says in verse 10, he says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, and now what he's gonna do is he's gonna turn us back actually to the saints in the Old Testament. And he says, if you want to learn patience, you must not only look ahead, but look back to the communion of saints that you are a part of. And he says, as an example, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. I mean, if there's anybody who had to endure a bunch of junk in their life, it was Job. And it wasn't that Job didn't complain. He complained. He complained. It wasn't that Job didn't, he wasn't like, you know, overcome with questions and anxiety and confusion over the whole thing. He was. But Job hung on. And he says, be like the prophets, be like Job. Hang on in the face of your suffering. But I think what I'm encouraged by about this is he's reminding us that in the midst of our impatience, in the face of those moments where we feel like God is inactive, he's uncooperative, and he's just late, that you and I are not alone. This has always been the experience of the people of God. Do you realize this? I mean, is there anybody in this room who've ever felt like God has been inattentive to their prayers? Just raise your hand. And you, the rest of you, Raise your hand if you don't feel like God has been inattentive to your prayers. You've never felt that in your entire life. But my point is is that you are not alone. The flow of biblical history is filled with people waiting Noah waited for the flood waters to, rec- to recede. Abraham and Sarah waited for the promised child. Jacob says he waits for the salvation of the Lord. Moses waits with the children of Israel 40 years in the wilderness. Waiting is fundamental to the people of God. You are not alone. Not just the flow of biblical history, but this room is filled with people who know what it means to wait. And I think one of the difficult things is when we feel like everyone else seems to have their prayers answered and God seems to just be at work in other people's lives, but I'm alone in this. And pastors are not always helpful because preachers make it sound like it's always some problem with you. You don't pray hard enough or long enough, or you've got sin in your life that you need to get out. Or you've got people around you, and it seems like they get everything, and life just seems to go well for them. And you think, but I'm a better person than them. They aren't even good people, and look at how, what a wrinkle-free life they get, and then what makes it even worse is that there's Christian people who say all kinds of stupid things like, you know, I was at the mall the other day and I, I'm just so busy. And, and I just said, Lord, you know, I'm in a hurry and I need a parking space. And I just turned my car in the closest spot to the mall, this person pulled out. And I just pulled it and I said, praise the Lord, He answered my prayers. And you just think, "Shut up! <laughs> I've been praying that God would heal my marriage, that He would bring the prodigal home, that He'd heal my pain-racked body, and, and, and the things He's concerned about is getting you a parking space. We can be frustrated, but what we learn from the communion of saints is that we are not alone. We are a community of people who suffer and who wait and who need patience. And I think we in America need to particularly be reminded of this because we grow up at a time and place in history that's like no other time in history where you grow up schooled in the American dream that one day you are gonna get a particular kind of life and a particular kind of house and job and success and fulfillment and all of this stuff. And, and you think, I've, we've got the technology, we've got the economy, we have the military that can secure all of this for us that, so that we can achieve this dream. And there's nothing wrong with the American dream. There's something nice about getting a nice house and a nice neighborhood and a nice car. But it's not the kingdom of God. The vision of the kingdom of God is for God himself not to deliver your personal dream in the face of and in the midst of a world that is marked by injustice and inequality and suffering. God's ultimate vision of the kingdom of God is to make everything right in this world of injustice and inequality and suffering so that when we participate in it, we can participate in the fullness with joy because we are not the only ones, and it's not at the expense of people on the other side of the planet who are doing the work that is enabling us to live the kind of life we wanna live. And very often we approach Christianity as if Jesus exists to help us achieve the American dream. And if he's not delivering, if we're not getting success, if we're not getting the promotion, if we're not getting the house, if we're not getting the spouse, then all of a sudden it's God's fault and God has let me down and I'm walking away from church because this didn't work. It was never meant to work that way. Look at the history of the people of God. The primary experience of the people of God throughout redemptive history has been suffering. It's been a people that's on the margins. It's been a people that's been oppressed. You know, Christianity grew and spread in the first three centuries of the world, not because it eradicated suffering for the lives from the lives of those who became followers of Jesus. It grew in spite of their suffering. They were martyrs. People were getting thrown to the lions and yet Christianity was exploding, it was growing. Why? Because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and they knew that if God raised Jesus from the dead, God would act again in the future. And Christ should be revealed as the world's true king. And that was their hope. And that is our hope. It is not in the American dream. It is in the kingdom of God. See the community that you are a part of. He says, look forward and see the hope that is ahead. And then finally, he says, look up and see the God who is responsible for accomplishing this goal for accomplishing this great hope. At the end of our text in James, he says this He says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You know, one of the greatest passages on waiting in the entire Bible is Isaiah 40. We had it read for us, but it begins, the text we heard read begins with Israel asking that question, that perennial question, how long, O Lord, when God, when are you gonna stop disregarding me? And in response to this existential angst, God reaffirms his promise in the first half of the chapter, and then he reveals his nature and character, and he says this, have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary, his understanding is unsearchable, and he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God says, do you know who I am? The one who will accomplish the ultimate redemption and healing of creation is none other than the one who called creation into being. Our redeemer is also our creator. He is the ground of all existence, the ground of being. Nothing exists apart from his will. And by his power and by his word, he brought all things into existence. And by this same power and by this same word, God is going to set everything right in the end. And he has made assurance for this because he has entered into his creation, his broken, pained creation. You know, the wonder of Christianity is the incarnation. It is that the eternal God would take on finite flesh. That the God who is the source of life would actually take into his life death so that he might crush death and sin finally and completely. Accomplishing the reconciliation of all things by grace through the work of Jesus Christ. And so he says, look up and see me. I have accomplished this work for you. I am at work in the world. One day I will bring it to its final culmination. And he says this, those who wait on the Lord, those who look to God, those who don't throw in the towel, who don't give up, who remain patient in the face of suffering. He says, they shall renew their strength and they shall mount up with wings like eagles. I did some research last night on bird flight and learned there are three types of bird flight. There's probably more. There's some birdologist. What do you call him? an or? Exactly. Just testing you. Seeing if Hugh Ross would whip it out and give us some information You probably could. (laughs) But there's flapping. And you can see flapping in like a little bird, like a hummingbird, you know, it's just... And then birds with a wider wingspan, they can engage in a second type of flight. It's gliding. This is kind of where... But then the third, the, the most magnificent type of flight is soaring. And this is what big, strong, strong birds do. This is what eagles do. And they get caught up in the wind, and it raises them higher and higher and higher and higher. And what this text is telling us is that when we look to God when we don't throw in the towel but we see God as our creator and our redeemer who we know in the face of Jesus Christ and we see that through him God brought about the end of sin and ultimately the reconciliation of all things. He says that gives us the hope to continue to move forward and to go higher and to move on. And so may you, may I, may we look to him. And may we soar. Let's pray together. Our great God, we come to you now and we praise you and we thank you that you are a God who makes and who keeps promises. You promised to Israel as she sat in her dark night of exile that you would come again. God, you have been faithful. You have come into this world in Jesus. You have kept your promise. You have been faithful. And your faithfulness in the past assures us that you will be faithful to your promises in the future, that you will come again. God, would that hope, the hope of your kingdom, be the hope that truly invigorates us, that energizes us, that moves us into action in this world. May it not be the hope of some American dream, God, but may it be the vision of your kingdom. And may your promises fill us with hope and with joy and with singing. And we ask this in Jesus' name in whom all of your promises are yes and amen. Amen.